that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino You eat pizza, you drink vino Then they make you roly-poly You get stuffed with ravioli If your mama's a paisano You will have the world on a plate So see that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm your moderator, John Viola, and today I have the pleasure of being here with my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., the Cavaliere Avocado. Ufficiale. You forgot Uf- oh, oh, Ufficiale. Excuse me. Excuse me. You were promoted last year. My, my mistake. Complaca. Complaca. Complaca, yeah. yes. That means uh, with star. Pardon me for Thank those you. who are uninitiated. And we've got a really special guest with us today. He's a friend of ours who's also one of my favorite authors, and I can tell you he was one of my favorite authors before he was one of my friends, which is a really great feeling in life. And before I introduce his amazing academic credentials, I want to introduce the Italian-American that is Lou Mendela. So Lou has been living for decades in Sicily, but uh, originally he is, like us, an Italian-American from Rochester, New York. So coming to us today from the beautiful city of Palermo, Sicily, he is our friend and one of the foremost historians on the island of Sicily in southern Italy, our dear friend, Mr. Lou Mandela. Lou, welcome to the Italian-American Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. I know we've been talking about doing this for a while, so we're really excited to have you on today. Uh, as Pat pointed out before we started, we are recording Saturday, the Feast of St. Anthony. So, Pat, I know you are a great devotee of St. Anthony. Yes, I'm very, very de- My mother's whole family is very devoted to St. Anthony. And, you know, unfortunately, due to the virus, we can't gather the way we, we traditionally do. So we have a Tredicina in New Jersey. We have a 13-night novena in Nutley. And then we have a party on the actual feast day at night, which is fantastic after the mass and the procession. And also my good friends, the Maetas, in total in New Jersey, they're from Cereto Sanita. Cereto Sanita, they're patrons of St. Anthony. And they throw a house party in their yard every year. It is one of the highlights of my life because they make tripe every year. And the tripe is fantastic. That's right up your alley. Francesca, who's one of their paisans, jars her own tomatoes from seeds she bought from Cerato Sanita, and they make apinho. She makes apinho, which is a kind of like a brioche. That's the closest thing I, I can compare it to, and it has frosting on top. So for St. Anthony, I always have the tripe. The Saturday around St. Anthony's, the either before or after they have the party, the tripe and the pina. And this year, no tripe, no pina. That's a tough loss. So I always celebrate with the maetas in person, but this year we got to do it telematically, so I just want to wish them luck. Well, I know we're all missing our feast this summer, and hopefully we get back to normal next year. But we definitely have a little treat today because, Lou, we got a lot to discuss today. Yeah. You know, over the past couple of months, even though all of us are from the New Jersey, New York area and from Southern Italian extraction, we've been trying over the past couple of months to really explore the legacy of Northern Italian immigration to the United States, uh, some of the unique figures and communities around the country. But... Today's show gets to bring us back to one of my ancestral homelands, the beautiful island of Sicily. Lou is one of the foremost scholars in any language, but for all of us that are first language English speakers, we have the privilege of reading Lou's books in their original English. They're fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. If you're out there, if you're out there, (laughs) 
and you want to give yourself a treat because you deserve it, buy a Lou Mendela book. Yeah, it's true. If you have an Italophile friend, buy a Lou Mendela book. You will never, ever be disappointed. No, definitely not. There's not a penny or a nickel you could spend better. <laughs> it's true. But Lou, how did you end up coming from a Sicilian-American family in Rochester, New York, deciding to go back? And you really are. Like, you're not visiting there. You are Sicilian at this point. You are resident, permanent. How yeah. did you go back? How did that happen? Um, yeah, long story short, I'm not really out there as much as, as a lot of people who like lectures and things like that. I do it occasionally, mostly here. The story that I tell in some of my books about how when I was about 13 years old, I said something to my grandmother uh, who had been born in Sicily in 1901. Uh, so this is a conversation in like, you know, the 70s. Um, something about Garibaldi and she set me straight. And it was like me listening to revisionist history. And in those days, except for like Harold Acton, and people like Stephen Runciman, John Julius Norwich, there was hardly anything available in the U.S. that dealt with Sicilian history, either medieval history or even like modern history. And certainly the encyclopedias told one story. I was getting something else from my grandmother. So that maybe was one of the first inklings of that. Later, I had actually, uh, I had actually worked in advertising a bit. And, you know, the whole situation went bad in the early 90s. And I had a friend who had a, a little firm in Sicily doing genealogical research. And he said, why don't you come over? This was before the internet, a whole different world. So I came over and started doing that. And I was fortunate that I knew some people in the Vatican who could get me into a lot of archives, uh, it, which in those days was tricky. You needed a recommendation or whatever, whatever it was. So at one point, I had like completely unrestricted access to like the Vatican archives and the Vatican Apostolic Library. Uh, the so-called secret archives and you know the apostolic library. And I would go in there and much of my research there dealt with genealogical things involving aristocratic families, but some of it involved the Middle Ages, for example. And it's something I didn't record at the time. I didn't write it down, which I should have. Um, so I, there I am in the Vatican library and I come across a reference to the Essays of Ariano of 1140, which was like the first legal code of the kingdom of Sicily. And it's a reference to it it wasn't the actual code, which had been discovered in the 1860s. They've got two codices, one from Monte Cassino, one from the Vatican. So here I am looking at this. I'm thinking, oh my God, I've never seen this mentioned anywhere, not even by Italian people writing things in Italy. And unfortunately, I didn't save this was written on a piece of parchment. I didn't save the manuscript. I didn't make any, any real reference of it. It wasn't even cataloged. It wasn't even really indexed. And there it was. And it was something written apparently in the 1150s referring to the laws of Roger II, mentioning a date like 1142. This is kind of remarkable because scholars even today debate whether the Assizes of Ariana were really written in 1140 or not. Wow. So perhaps if you don't stumble onto these documents and if you're not in the Vatican archives to begin with, maybe you don't set out on this path to become the historian that you are today. What good luck. Um, this has come up as well because people have asked, OK, who did you know? My real connection to the Vatican was Jacques Martin, a cardinal who had been prefect of the pontifical household under three different popes. And by 1990, he had recently retired and he would like accompany the pope going you know, around the world. And he, this guy had been in the Vatican since he'd been a seminarian during the Second World War. So you can imagine the war stories. And he was able to get me into like just about any place. I had uh, access to archives all over Italy, like parish archives, for example, okay, which which because they're not centralized. And there was there was that kind of access that most people simply didn't get. And I was not quite 30 years old. So he introduces me to Alphonse Stickler, who later became, I was a night, you know, uh, whatever. Prior you're, dropping, you're dropping big names here, my friend. 
He's a, <laughs> you got he's like Vatican A listers of time. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, oh like, yeah, no I, doubt. I don't know. John's not getting anything on how another, but I I I totally <laughs> am getting the message here. Okay, anyway. That's getting hot. Yeah, yeah, no, stick, stick with please. Like, stick with okay, listen. Okay, look. I, like I said, Alphonse Stickler had the illustrious title, but it was a real title. Archivist of the Holy Roman Church. That's like the official title, okay? Wow. So, so I had access to a lot of stuff, which in those days, this was before stuff was digitized for the internet or anything else. And, and, and also very little had been written in English about the medieval history of Sicily. You know, and I think one of the things that, Maybe it's a bit different about me. Uh, and also Jackie Alio, who's written some books with me. Like she did a, a magnificent book that came out last year about the first queens of Sicily. It's, a, it's a, like almost 800 pages long. The thing is that we're writing like in real English, okay? And I say this not to disparage anybody in Italy, but I think the difference is that when I write something, being a native speaker, okay, Jackie and I are like the only native speakers of English who write original scholarly medieval history that were based in Sicily, okay, or probably you know, Southern Italy. So like when we translate a medieval chronicle, which we have both done from Latin, I've also did one from Sicilian, you know, you're not going to give that to that kind of project to somebody who's not a native speaker of English, because the idea is you're doing a translation. So I think that's one of the different things, okay? Because yes, there are, certainly there are, there, especially now, there are people generally perhaps a bit younger than me who are getting into the field because there's been a blossoming of curiosity about Norman Sicily. The last 15 years or so, it's gone completely crazy. It's, it's all over the place. Um, there's some good Arabists. Uh, I'll give you an example. Leonard Chiarelli, he's out in Salt Lake. He's a very good Arabist who wrote like the defining book on the Muslims of medieval Sicily. And Leonard actually can handle the Sicilian language, which has all kinds of Arabic in it. Um, so that's kind of where we are with this. I mean, it's, it's, it is definitely a growing field. Nowadays, most of my books, um, I try to make it somewhat appealing to normal people, not just to academics. Well, let me say, that's one of the things I've always really enjoyed about your books is uh, I'm a fan of history, but these are works that are really accessible and easy to read for everybody. Right. And that's kind of all too rare, particularly when it speaks to Italian history. And frankly, the fact that Italian history is so hard to come by in English actually makes it even more amazing that, as you mentioned, this field and the re-exploration of Norman Sicilian history is so booming right now. And we talk about the Norman period a lot on this show, but for those who are not long-time listeners, when we talk about that period, we're really talking about like 10, 15, 16, all the way through 1282, right? Which I would kind of consider the Norman, uh, German, Swabian period. Uh, yeah, Nor Norman, and then from about 1194 until about 1266, that was the Swabians, that's the, the, Ho the Hohenstaufens. So in fact, Jackie and I, when we, we like to refer it to it as the Norman Swabian period, not yes. some, some scholars cut it off. Just I, I prefer to say it was one continuous thing. And so for those who really are unfamiliar with the history, you're talking about an amazing period in Sicilian history, Italian history, European history, really world history, because the Norman kingdom of Sicily is the period where the southern half of the Italian peninsula and the island of Sicily over many decades are united into a contiguous kingdom and a nation state. Right. And right. the interesting development there is people don't really realize when it becomes a kingdom in 1130, it's one of the few kingdoms in Europe because it was a rare thing for a state to become elevated to a kingship at that point. Right. Because a lot of them were run by, they were, they were counties or, or was a Duke, like the Duke of Normandy or the right. Count of Toulouse, that type of the, the Count of Barcelona. Right. So yes. So yes. this is really a golden period in Sicilian history, uh, a time of multiculturalism, the mixture of so many kinds of peoples, but 
now, after all of these centuries, popular attention has, as you say, sort of turned backwards onto this period. It seems to me that the peaceful coexistence and, and thriving of so many unique cultures in this kingdom is a big part of the appeal for historians and for and for regular folks alike. But why do you think it took so long? And what is it now that has made this history so much more appealing to people? A big part of it is tourism, because I, I, I can tell you, for example, when you're in Sicily, you've got uh, you've got cruises, for example. There's the Eastern Mediterranean cruises and the Western Mediterranean cruises, and they all come to Sicily. Some might be going to Taormina and Syracuse, and the others might be coming to Palermo. Okay, and you've got the Palatine Chapel, which has is a, is a it's a Norman Arab. Uh, it's in the Royal Palace here in Palermo, and it's got it, the walls are full of mosaics. The ceiling is uh there. It's Fatimid. It's the the Mucarnas, um, the, the, which are the you know, the, the oblong extensions that you see like at the Alhambra in Spain, for example. Um, in fact, it's considered the largest single Fatimid work of art. And it's got the mosaics, uh, which are Byzantine. So everything comes together. You've got the Romanesque design of the church. So in fact, I don't even just, I don't say Norman Arab, I'll say Norman Arab Byzantine. Also Monreale Abbey, which is nearby, which is like, like about four or five miles outside the center of Palermo, which is an incredible church. Uh, and this church was completed like around 1185. The mosaics, cover like 30% more space than St. Mark's in Venice. And they're, they're marvelous. It's bigger yeah. than Ravenna. And people um, go to see that. And it's absolutely awe-inspiring stuff. That's a great point. The convergence of architectural styles is really indicative of how many peoples were actually here living peacefully, coexisting, and thriving together uh, in the south of Italy at this point. And also Bari. Okay, Bari has a very beautiful Norman Arab church. Uh, or I should say, well, Norman Byzantine, not, not Arab in that case. Uh, Salerno used to, there have been earthquakes, okay? So there's, some of the stuff in Salerno has been destroyed. Uh, you've got to consider that in the Middle Ages, it, going into the 11th century, Salerno and Bari were the most important cities in Southern Italy. Not, Naples was just a village. Rome was underpopulated. So Salerno had been the focus of the, the so-called Lombards who had arrived in the 7th and 8th centuries and they had settled certain parts of um, Southern Italy, uh, like the, the feudal cities, okay? Like Benevento, for example, even though it was a papal city, that was mostly a Lombard city. Whereas Bari was uh, Byzantine because there was a Greek influence there, okay, the, the medieval Greeks. Um, Sicily was very prosperous. Sicily was, was Aglabid and then uh, Kelbid, Fatimid. It was, it was the Arabs, it was the Muslims. Except that half the people in Sicily, when the Normans got here, they, they came across the Strait of Messina finally in, in uh, 1061. Um, they came and they found that about half the people were Greek speaking, the other, the other half were Arabic speaking. Okay? Now, let's, let's just highlight what year that was for people out there. That was 1061. In fact, a, a cool little detail. And I've seen like the History Channel has picked up on this too. Um, it took so long to take Sicily. It took them 10 years to get to Palermo after that, that there were some knights who went to fight for the Normans in England and were to Hastings in 1066, who then apparently came back to Sicily a couple of years later to continue the conquest of Sicily. That's how crazy it was, okay? And the reason I want to highlight that for a lot of our listeners, I theorize that one thing that the Italian-American scholastic community, academic community, doesn't highlight or doesn't realize or doesn't research is how Greek the south of Italy stayed and for how long. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. In fact, there are places even today that you can visit that are no longer necessarily, let's say, Greek Orthodox, but like the, at Stilo in Calabria, there's a beautiful monastery up on a mountain. And I think, I think to, to, okay, one of my books, okay, uh, which I wrote with Jackie, Jackie Alio, 
The Peoples of Sicily, which is actually our best-selling book, although the genealogy book sells well too. It's about genealogical research. Um, the Peoples of Sicily talks about all of this. And I'm not just trying to pitch the book, but for example, the idea of the great schism of 1054 and how that influenced this, that the popes said to the Normans, listen, since you guys are here, basically mercenaries, um, in fact, to the point where some of them in, the, in these little, little conflicts between the Greeks of Bari and the, and the Lombards of Salerno, you'd have cases where you've got Normans fighting on both sides, okay? Um, essentially, what happened is around 1038, there was an incursion where the Byzantines tried to retake uh, Sicily uh, with, under George Maniakis. And it didn't go that well. They were only here for a few years. They, they were in eastern Sicily, and they just couldn't do it. They couldn't take it back from the Arabs. And that's interesting. Harold Hardrada was there, who became Harold III of Norway. I'll, I'll get to that. Uh, what it was is the Normans who were there uh, with these, these Norse who were in the Varangian Guard of Constantinople. They were also mercenaries, basically Viking, Viking uh, mercenaries, okay? Uh, and the Normans recognized that the Vikings were their distant kinsmen. Well, George Maniakis was, you know, he went back to, to Greece, and Harold Hardrada, Harold Sergensen, uh, Sergensen, he went back to Norway. But the Normans, who had settled in Sicily, who'd already been here for, uh, you know, going on two generations, they're like, well, we can get this place. We can take it, okay? And the Pope approved it because he said, okay, you're going to convert the, the Muslims, okay? Uh, and you're going to also bring these Greeks under Rome instead of Constantinople, okay? So like I said, this was a few years after the schism. So that's a big part of the, of the motivation. So, and I've said this also, Eastern Christianity was alive in Sicily at that time. Absolutely, yes. What I've argued, Glenn, you can correct me in this, is that I've said that the Latinization of Christianity in Southern Italy, where we went from a Byzantine to more of a, and I know both were scattered in the South, it was kind of where they meshed. Yeah. But where we went from a Byzantine church to a Latin church, that's because of the Normans. Am I correct? Absolutely. And consider that when the Normans arrived, much of Apulia and much of Calabria were still um, liturgically and socially Greek, Byzantine, and uh, the Christians in Sicily, especially like the eastern half of Sicily, which was more maybe Greek than Arab, that was absolutely the case, okay? There's no question. And uh, yes, there were people who, in those areas, who could handle Latin as a second language. The Sicilian and Neapolitan languages, per se, did not exist yet. So the Normans were influential in all of this. And what the distinguishing feature of their, of their kingdom, eventually, which was decades in the making, before 1130, you had a legitimately multicultural kingdom, particularly on the island of Sicily, okay? Because you still had the Arabs, and there were maybe a, a number of Jews, maybe like the population may have been as much as like 5% Jewish, which is quite a bit. So, in fact, the, the subtitle of my book, The People of Sicily, is A Multicultural Legacy. Uh, getting back to John's question, that's a big part of the appeal now that you've got the tourism and that multiculturalism is a concept. Um, not, not, I'm not saying as a political concept, I'm just saying as a social, religious, uh, linguistic, cultural kind of concept has finally come onto its own. And I was probably a little bit maybe ahead of the curve on that, you know, in the 1990s. But it, I think that's a big part of this. It's like, well, gee, this was a place where people got along for at least, let's say, a good 200 years. Um, that came from these the different languages, religions, backgrounds, the only place really in Europe, um, except maybe briefly in Spain a little bit, where people could do that for 200 years without killing each other, okay? So that's the remarkable thing. And what, the, what you can see, what you can touch is you, we still have uh, the, the architecture, the art, and even the cuisine. In fact, in Jackie's um, recent book, Sicilian Queenship, there's an entire chapter that she's got recipes from the 11 and 1200s, okay? For example, spaghetti, 
was invented in Sicily um, when uh, uh, Muhammad al-Idrizi, uh, he wrote a, a geography with the focal point on, on Sicily and Italy. Um, he went to a town near Trebia, a place called Trebia near Palermo. He saw them making what he called Etria, which is the Arabic word for spaghetti or ver vermicelli. Uh, by the way, just as an aside, you had the Greek Christians, let's say Orthodox, let's say Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox after 1054. Then you had the Latins, let's say Catholic. Okay, among the uh, Muslims, they were more or less divided because the dynasties switched, you know, from one to another were different, um, you know, were different polities. There were Shia, okay, there were Sunnis. There was also an, an Ibadi community at uh, Kasabiani, okay? And by the way, that was discovered by Leonard Curelli, who's over at the University of Utah, okay? Um, just to say, there are a few of us Italian-Americans who are, you know, uh, once in a while we do come up with something original. Yeah, that says a lot about us. But I think that that's part of the appeal of this period in Sicilian history, this period in Southern Italian history. For what was then the known world, there is a fingerprint of almost every culture. I remember a few years back, they brought some kids over from the Steinhardt School at New York University. And I'm giving a lecture, and this is where it gets kind of interesting. And it really transcends Italy, because it doesn't have that much to do with just Italy or Greece or even the Mediterranean. I start talking. Now, obviously, these are kids from NYU, a multicultural group, we could say, because they're Americans for the most part. But you've got Asian Americans, you've got, you know, Bangladeshi and Indian Americans, you've got you know, the white kids, the Italian Americans, whatever. Everybody's there. And um, I start talking. And I said, okay, paper, paper making came to Europe with the Arabs who brought it from China. And then I start talking about how Hindu Arabic numerals were brought by the Arabs from the area, let's say they were as far as Pakistan. So they brought that, that over again to Spain and Sicily. So all of a sudden you've got this Eurocentric, um, let's say, or, you know, it's Sicily, it's Italy. It's, it's, you know, we're Eurocentric. I'm, you know, I'm a white guy with blue eyes giving the lecture, but all of a sudden you see the, the Asian American kids, their ears are perking up. Oh, there's something in here for me. It's like that, that scene at the end of the Wizard of Oz where Dorothy says, I don't think you've got anything in that sack for me, but instead you do, okay? Um, and then I start talking about Harold Hadrada and there's this, um, you know, the Swedish girl, she, she starts jumping up and down. Oh, look, look, our king was, our, one of our kings was in Sicily. So I think this is what's really fascinating about Sicily in particular. Uh, and of course the kingdom of Sicily encompassed all of Italy from basically Naples southward, okay? But Sicily in particular, I think, brings us all of this. It's a conglomeration of everything, and it all comes together in this one place. So I think that's really the, the, the fascinating thing about Sicily. And I think when people, people go beyond, if, if they come and they see the Palatine Chapel or they see Mondreale without necessarily being too much informed about it beforehand, they go crazy over it. It's like, gee, I didn't know that this was here. I didn't know that this was going on. Or the Italian-Americans. Gee, I thought, I was told my family was always Catholic. Well, no, if you go back far enough, they were Orthodox, they were, you know, Eastern Christians, and some of them were probably Jewish, you know, some of them were probably Muslims, okay? So I think that's the fascinating thing about the Kingdom of Sicily. So can I, just, just to simplify it, so your thesis that we're sharing today with our listeners is that Sicily was kind of the Manhattan of its time. Yes, absolutely. The yes. New York City of its time. Right, that's well said. Diversity... A lot of people from all different parts you think would be killing each other, yeah. kind of living together in some sort of harmony that other places couldn't kind of manage at, at, the, at the same time. Right. To the point that the first king of Sicily during the first couple of crusades, he was reticent about letting his knights go to fight in Palestine, you know, in, in, in the Holy Land, because he said, well, we're not really at war with the Muslims personally, okay? Um, now, there was more to it than that because the mother of King Roger II, Adelaide, 
her second marriage was to the king of Jerusalem, who happened to be married to another woman at the time. And then she came back to Sicily in disgrace. So there's a little bit more to that. There's a backstory there. But regardless, the point is that they had had incursions into Greece. They had incursions into like what is now Tunisia. Okay, so there, there was some of that. Okay, but they were reluctant to get into an actual war of religion against the Muslims. And even when Frederick II, so this is like we're talking at this point, let's say 1228, he went on the so-called Sixth Crusade to Jerusalem he's there and he's speaking Arabic to the Muslims and nobody was killed. He cut a deal with them so that, you know, for at least a decade, uh, you know, that they, that they would say, okay, at least there was peace in Jerusalem for a little while. He gets back to Italy. The Pope is ticked off. He thought that they were going to be using military force to control the Muslim element. Instead, Frederick negotiates a peace treaty and he, and he comes back and the Pope said, well, gee, you didn't have to ha- have to have a war. Uh, he said, no, I took care of it. I, I negotiated it. And the people in Rome were absolutely mystified because this was the first time in history that, uh, as far as they knew, that they could go to the east to Palestine and not have a military conflict, that they were actually able to achieve some peace, at least for a time, without having an actual war. So it really astounded the Pope. You know, and that's why media paints Italy in such unfair terms, because the media paints Sicily and Sicilians as bloodthirsty, vicious, um, vendetta, stiletto. And here we have a, a Sicilian of a millennium, a millennium ago who's a peacemaker. Yes. Who avoids, who does something that nobody else could do. There's also a big divide between, let's say, modern Italy uh, or, or let's say modern southern Italy and the medieval period. Because actually the big changes in Italy came about towards the end of the 13th century, 1200s which is when you see the emergence of Tuscan, the Tuscan language, Dante, Boccaccio. Essentially, when Frederick II died in 1250, his sons succeeded him, okay? And finally, in 1266, his last son, uh, Manfred, was defeated at the Battle of Benevento by forces that were supported by the Pope, because the Popes, for a long time, did not like the idea that Frederick, whose father was a Holy Roman Emperor, Henry VI, uh, his mother was the last daughter of Roger II. That's the connection. That's how there was a dynastic transition. Uh, Frederick actually ruled much of Italy. He had the northern communes like Milan and those places, which were part of the Holy Roman Empire to the north. And he ruled the Holy Roman Empire. And he had the kingdom of Sicily, which was from Naples southward. And the Pope was kind of like sandwiched in the middle. So the Popes didn't like that. They felt threatened, uh, whether they were or not, because you know it's not as if Frederick was really trying to take over papal territory. Uh, what happened was that they brought in the younger brother of St. Louis, the ninth, St. Louis, uh, Charles of Anjou, became a papal candidate to become king of Sicily. So uh, there was a war fought, and at 1266, at the Battle of Benevento, Manfred was killed, the, the last son of Frederick II, and that's when the Angevins became kings of Sicily, and then they transferred the capital to, to Naples, they eventually became kings of Naples. Um, this was the, the war, if historians will know this, anybody who's read like Stephen Ronsonman's book, The Sicilian Vespers, which is a very good book. Um, it was the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. The Guelphs were the people supporting the papacy and eventually the Angevins, the House of Anjou of France. And the Ghibellines supported the Holy Roman Emperor. In this case, it was at the end, Frederick II and his sons. In fact, if you read Dante or Boccaccio, they have a terrible view of Frederick II as if he were the Antichrist. That's largely propaganda, okay? That was, those people were Guelphs in Northern Italy in the communes who did not like the Holy Roman Emperor. That's basically what that's about. That was a turning point in, in Italian culture. That's when 
Tuscan became a more important language than Sicilian because the Sicilian school under Frederick II, uh, going back to the 1220s, Sicilian was a, an, it was the first Italian vernacular language that was written in poetry, okay, after vulgar Latin. That was the first language. It was not Tuscan. Now, now scholars will tell you this, but the average person doesn't know it. Okay? So, that, so that the raw Italian, as I've argued in podcast after podcast, the local languages, which were incorrectly and maliciously named dialects, were not dialects. Right. Of course not. They were languages right. that lost the war, right? Who writes history? The winners. So Sicilian was positioned to be the language of Italy. So you'd be turning on Rye today if history had gone differently and had heard Idu Eda would have been the language of Rye. Yes, that's exactly true. And so uh, that's, that's the real evolution of the language. And with, with this, because after 1300, you found a gradual decline. You no longer had the multicultural golden age of Southern Italy. Uh, you had the Kingdom of Naples. And then after 1282, there was the War of the Vespers when they split. Okay, you, so you had the peninsula was the Kingdom of Naples. The island was the Kingdom of Sicily. Very often ruled from afar. Okay, uh, you had the Angevin dynasty. They usually lived in Naples. Okay, the House of Anjou for a long time. And Sicily was ruled from Spain for a very long time. In fact, up almost really basically into the 1700s, uh, which is why you have a Spanish Baroque style in, in Sicily. So I, but the issue is that this division of, let's say, Italy, not that Italy was ever really super united before that, but this division, the social cultural division, you can really go back to the, let's say, the end of the 1200s, okay? Which is nothing to disparage Tusc the Tuscan language or Dante, Boccaccio, Petrarch, who've become the, you know, the, the deities, the gods of Italian linguistic history. That's fine. My point is that you can go back literally to the 13, 13th century and you can see that that's when there was a turning point with the end of the Norman Swabian era that Southern Italy went into a very slow, gradual decline, which coincided a little bit with the Latinization in a way, uh, Latinization of the church, for example. The last Muslim community in Southern Italy was Lucera, which yeah, is in uh, Puglia, right, which was basically suppressed by Charles II, the son of Charles Anjou, in the 1300s, no, just around 1300. And those people, the Muslims from Lucera, at the Battle of Benevento in 1266, and there was also a coda to that, uh, the Battle of Tagliacozzo two years later. At Benevento, the archers were all Muslims from Lucera. They were the best archers in Europe. They were better than the English, okay? The long, longbow archers, not, not crossbow archers. And then, of course, especially in the South, because the Spanish influence, 1492, 1493, they suppressed the Jews. Okay, now that was a few decades later on the mainland. But in, in Rome, and even, even some of the northern cities, okay, the Jews were, um, they were in ghettos. Okay, there, it's not like they were, there was complete freedom of religion, let's say. So this is the reason, because people will ask me sometimes, they'll say, well, how is it that we reached this point that you talk about the so-called decline of Southern Italy? Well, the cultural decline not so much the economic decline necessarily, but the cultural decline began basically in 1266. You know, for those who are looking for a more broad stroke overview, because there's so much history here, so many figures and characters and events and uh, changes in leadership. We did an episode a few months back. I gave a lecture in Cleveland and we turned it into episode 113 called Why I'm a Neo-Bourbon. And it's in our archive. We'll link it to the show page and it should give you a good overview. Yeah, yeah, I heard it. I heard it. Actually, it's actually very good. You did, you did a good job. Wow. wow. Thank you, Lou. From you, that's like huge praise. I'm gonna put that on my CV. I, I thought no, really, I really, I thought it was, I thought it was, it was clear, it was concise, and you know, it's not easy because you're going in. Not only is it that people are just, let's say, ignorant of, of the material, or I should, you know, not knowledgeable. It's also a question that in some cases they've heard the so-called other side of the story coming out from Italy. Because frankly, 
and I can understand this. Okay, I don't want to be too critical here. I can see that if you are, let's say you're with the Italian you know, Cultural Institute, which is like, you know, in, like attached to the Italian consulates in, in the US or Canada or, or the UK, I can understand where those guys represent the Italian government. I don't expect Giuseppe Conte, even though his, his, his family is from Puglia, okay? Um, I don't expect him to go to the US, let's say, or any Italian from Italy and, and to let's say bring out, take out our dirty laundry and say, well guys, yeah, I know our country was just kind of jerry-rigged together in 1860, there's no real Italy. Okay, I don't expect, and I'm not saying we break up Italy. So I can understand where some of these folks are coming from. I'm not looking for a fight. I'm just looking to tell history accurately, okay? Uh, you've got to consider that in Italy, when they teach history in the schools, generally it ends in 1920. The kids here don't even know about fascism. They know nothing about it. Unfortunately, in Italy, they teach history up to, you know, up to about 1920. They don't teach anything about fascism in the Second World War, probably because it's never been really addressed that well, unlike Germany and, and Japan. And in the 1950s and 60s, they were concerned the kid might go home from school and get a different version of that history, depending on whether his family was, uh, you know, which side they were sympathetic from uh, at the end of the war in 1945. So in Italy, unfortunately, a lot of even the modern history is not taught, you know, let's say post-1900. And in an effort to keep the country together, uh, which we've seen, you know, recently we've seen problems with regionalism in Italy, if you, you know, uh, to keep it together. They don't necessarily want to confront these kinds of things that openly. Uh, but for a long time, the, the question of unification was kind of something just beneath the surface. They were trying to keep the country together, which almost split up in 1945, 1946. So I can understand that. You know, I can see where somebody maybe doesn't want to open up Pandora's box, but that doesn't mean it's not there. So let's talk a little bit about how this history directly impacts modern Italy and modern Italian culture, modern Italian society. You know, we're talking about a Scandinavian culture and the Normans who eventually end up all over the world, but they make their way through Scandinavia into northern France and Normandy to England, eventually to the south of Italy. They bring with them all of those places that they've been, and then when they get here, they encounter a place that holds the cultures of the Arab world, the Jewish world, the Lombards, the Romans, the Greeks, all of which they then weld into one functional state. And now more than ever, we have to ask ourselves, does the legacy of that nation still live on in modern Italy and particularly in modern Sicily? Uh, one of the things that I keep coming back to is a conversation that I had with Leo Luco Orlando, who's the mayor of Palermo, many, many term mayor of Palermo, uh, a few years ago when I was in Sicily for our NIAF region of honor there. And if you recall, during those years, and especially prior to the arrival of the Northern League and the government and their very stringent laws on, on the migrant crisis and immigration into Italy, Italy was really wrestling with a lot of issues around the movement of peoples and this new multiculturalism that was coming to what had been a very monolithic cultural place for a long time. Right. And we were talking about security, and the mayor said, you know, we in Sicily are and always have been an almost subconsciously multicultural island. There's so many cultures in us that we actually have a much easier time integrating new arrivals. And whereas throughout other parts of Italy, there might be security concerns in Sicily, he found that these communities that were coming and becoming new Sicilians, they were actually monitoring themselves for signs of extremism or dissidence or anything that might prove to fracture their place in the wider culture. And so he was talking about how oftentimes 
any kind of security threat was actually reported from within the community itself. Is this something that you've seen? You've been there a very long time. Is this accurate? Has Sicily's multicultural legacy led to a place where modern immigrants are integrated better than the rest of Italy? You, you know what? Yeah, absolutely. I'll go further. And this is going to get some people up in Turin and Milan, maybe Rome, really, really crazy. Okay, Palermo. Okay, now I know Milan, I know that Naples can get a little bit a little bit dicey. I, I I get that. Okay, that they they've had a little bit of trouble, let's say, with the Camorra. That whereas in Sicily, the mafia has been reined in quite a bit. Um, Palermo, which has a population, let's say, in in the province of certainly uh, about a million. Okay, Palermo is one of the safest cities in Europe when it comes to things like street crime. You could walk around the city. Now, I'm not saying necessarily to go out and do it, but a, a woman, okay, could walk around here uh, on a Friday or Saturday night, okay, uh, even the, 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 the most integrated multicultural part of the city, whereas also where a lot of, let's say, the, the poor Palermitans live in, in those neighborhoods, okay, along with the immigrants from Asia and Africa, okay. Um, there, some of the neighborhoods might seem a little bit run down, but of course, those are the historical neighborhoods of Palermo. That's where the real history is, the, real, the old buildings, the medieval streets. It's a very large historical district. It's a, the, the ancient medieval district of Palermo is one of the largest in Europe. Um, the point is that we have a very mixed community, a lot of people from Asia and Africa, a great number that live in Palermo. And uh, when it comes to the, the local crime, uh, Palermo has an extremely, extremely low crime rate when it comes to street crime. Even the organized crime has been reined in quite a bit. It's, it's one of the safest cities in Europe. Let's say one of the best kept secrets in Europe, okay? Because when you read something, if you read something in The Economist or Newsweek or whatever, they, they don't really like, they don't focus that. They're looking for the mafia or something. But it's an absolutely incredibly safe city. The integration is, is remarkable. I remember, you know, I did this interview for the BBC, you know, about 10, 11 years ago. And they were astounded because they're walking around, you know, interviewing people in Arabic and, and talking to all the Tunisians and the Moroccans that are here who run businesses, okay? Indians, Pakistanis, a fair number of Chinese, a lot of Africans, a, a, a lot of Nigerians. In fact, I think we now have like 90 or 100 identifiable ethnic groups in Palermo. Wow. Okay. By any standards, when it comes to this type of multiculturalism, new multiculturalism, which the mayor makes a good point, and I've discussed this when I've lectured like university students who come here, uh, we've actually brought back what we had seven centuries ago is what we've really done. And there's not a lot of fighting or infighting. Local people get along quite well with the immigrants. I would say maybe some of it is apathy or indifference, which goes back because the Sicilians are not nationalists. They're not really Italian-Italian nationalists. So these movements that we, they have up north that might have you know, a tinge of separatism or a very subtle racism in some cases, I, if, if I dare say, you don't have that here. That just doesn't exist. We never had it. And I've heard cases where people of color tell me that up in not just Milan, but some of the, the cities uh, you know, around there, the smaller cities, that they've had run-ins with people, that people insult them in this and that. I've, I've heard this. That doesn't happen here. It's an amazing phenomenon when you sit back. And I've seen it evolve because you know, I've been here since the 90s. I, I've seen uh, little by little that you had more and more of these immigrants coming in, setting up little businesses and so forth. And we all get along quite well. It's an astounding thing. You've got to really come here to see it. It's funny because we have tried really hard not to let the real world eke into our show. Uh, during this coronavirus and all of the stuff that we've been going through as a society, we made a conscious decision that our show was going to be about entertainment, education, and sure. frankly, a little bit of escapism. Sure. But the truth of the matter is, at this very moment here in the United States and around the world, uh, the battle for racial justice, for social justice, for the tools, frankly, for us to learn how to live in a new and globalized world is 
raging all around us. Right, right. That's fair. And, you know, you spoke about the Sicilian apathy, but I've always felt, speaking as a Sicilian myself, that apathy is as much apathy as it is stoicism, because this is a people that has seen conquest and invasion and migration from every corner of the globe at all times and throughout all eras. And I wonder sometimes if that stoicism is built in to our DNA, into our blood memory. And when we look out on our world and we see the movement of peoples, the rubbing up against one another of cultures and faiths and creeds and beliefs and values, more so than ever in recorded history because of the ease of transportation and movement, because of the rapid transference of communication. Not only are we experiencing these things faster, we're hearing about them faster, we're learning about them faster, we're seeing their results lived out in front of us on TV, on our phone, on our screens. I wonder if now more than ever, this island and this wonderfully unique golden age in its history can really serve as a roadmap for the future, not just there, but in the world. Can the Kingdom of Sicily and its multicultural legacy go beyond its life as just a historical period and actually offer something of an instruction for our times? It's a good point. And I think also, because now, nowadays, you know, you, people do these genetic tests and they'll say, okay, so, and, and you've got the different haplogroups and, you can, and you've got some people that one haplogroup might be more closely identified, let's say with the Normans and the Germans and so forth. In fact, my, on my book in genealogy, I've got a chapter on this. Uh, I think the issue is that in Italy, for the past five or six, seven centuries, there's been a Latin monoculture. Okay. So when people come to Italy, their first thing, oh, it's Italy, it's Latin, it's Catholic, it's this and that. Okay. And that is actually true. Like I was saying, after the 13th, 14th century, that is certainly true. There was a uniformity throughout the country with the, you know, the Italian language and, you know, the dominance of Catholicism and so forth. So I don't know if you can really say there's a simple straight line, a continuity. Okay. Because it's not like any Sicilian living in Sicily today can point to a Sicilian grandfather who was born and raised speaking, you know, from Sicily, speaking Arabic or speaking Greek, you know, or Norman French. Okay. There's not that kind of a close connection. Okay. Which, which can make things a little bit tricky maybe to understand. But if you look at the history, and certainly, the, the, like I say, the cuisine, the architecture, the art, it's all right there. Okay, to give you an example, not just, not just let's say, spaghetti, pasta that I mentioned earlier, but, you know, um, the arancina, the rice ball, that's a recipe that goes back, because it was the Arabs who brought rice to Sicily, and which was, by the way, centuries before they introduced rice up in Piedmont. Because you think of risotto, you think of Piedmont and that whole area al- along the Po where they cultivate rice. But... They actually, the Arabs brought irrigation systems to Sicily, and they're the ones who probably introduced rice in Sicily, which, by the way, was grown here into the 20th century. Now they're reintroducing it. I guess when Francesco Crispi was prime minister uh, in the, like, 1890s, I guess, or maybe earlier, actually, he came to Sicily, and he didn't like it that the town he was born in, Ribera, um, that I they, know a lot uh, of Ribera's people. Dr. Jenna Tanasio, hello, keep going, I'm sorry. The Ribera, I had to do my Ribera shout out. They are fantastic cooks. They make the best rice balls. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, right. And and they were raising rice into the late 1800s. Francesco Crispi got ticked off at the people from Ribera because he didn't think they were very nice to him following the unification because they were against it. So he goes back to Rome. He, he basically banned them from raising rice. And, of course, the Savoys were happy because it bolstered the industry up in Piedmont, which they were trying to develop a little bit more. 
I'm not saying the Sicilians invented everything and sent everything to Piedmont, but I'm just saying it's one of these little cultural points. So the rice ball, the arancina, which is if nobody's had, had them before, it's almost like taking a piece of paella and rolling it into a ball and coating it with some breading, and then frying it up. It's delicious. And it, you know, traditionally it was made with, uh, you might have meat stuffed in the center of it. In uh, caponata, for example, which is a, also like the idea, maybe even like the, the canolo, uh, because one of the things the Arabs, for example, they brought sugar cane to Sicily. So the pastries evolved in Southern Italy with the Arabs. So this is something where it's not just something in a book. It's something that you can go see the architecture. Uh, give you, this is a fun example. I, I, Palermo Cathedral, there's a Gothic portico that they added in the 1400s. There's four pillars supporting this portico. One of the pillars has a surah from the Quran carved into it because that pil- these pillars used to belong to a mosque. They dug them up someplace in the city of Palermo. And at that point, nobody in Sicily, they, didn't, they couldn't understand Arabic. Somebody must have figured it out, but it was a very ornate thing. They probably couldn't read it, okay? So you've got a pillar with a Quranic surah propping up the portico of the Cathedral of Palermo. There's another one in the Martirana Church, same deal. It's possible they didn't even know it came from a mosque. Well, it's interesting you say that, right? Because you're talking about how we don't necessarily still have the direct ancestry to these ancient peoples. But the fact that the Palermo Cathedral or Marturana is built out of the pieces of these other cultures, and even the Cathedral of Syracuse, for example, right. built on a Greek temple with Greek columns. These are stones that sat there in pagan times. That's in the DNA and the blood memory of Sicily. And perhaps we're not aware of our ancestry in a psychological way, but you can't escape it when it radiates from the stones that you touch and the food that you eat and the language that you speak and the energy all around you. Yeah, right, right. And it could very well be that these people on this island are psychologically, culturally, genetically predisposed to a peaceful coexistence around a multicultural society. Uh, yes, right, absolutely. And I'll tell you something. Somebody, I don't have a, all the details on this, and I know that these things can be a little bit complex, okay? But somebody recently came up with a theory that maybe one of the reasons, okay, uh, not the only reason, one of the reasons that there were fewer cases of the coronavirus in Sicily than certain other parts of Italy is that he thought there was enough genetic diversity that maybe, um, uh, because now they're talking about like, 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 you know, type O blood and all this kind of thing. But he said maybe there's not as much of that genetic diversity, let's say in Lombardy, but you have a little bit more of it in Sicily. And maybe that was something that guarded people against the virus. And, uh, you know, it might make a little bit of sense because there are certain blood factors here, for example, that protect you against malaria. Thalassemia is the downside of that. So, and the point is, obviously, even though, most people, generation by generation, can't get back much before like 1480, 1490 in genealogical records, which, by the way, Sicily has the best genealogical records in the world, okay? Um, an ordinary family can often go back to line by line, okay, to like 1470, 1480. It's not unusual. Um, they look at this, and the fact is we are all descended from Muslims, Arabs, Normans, everybody. It's a simple fact. Now, this luckily doesn't happen much anymore. I used to get um, there's the, the website, Best of Sicily, that I write for. And sometimes I would get an email from somebody maybe who, like an Italian-American, who maybe didn't feel that comfortable that he might be descended from Muslims, okay, that type of thing. I don't think we have that much of that a- anymore. This, this goes back maybe 17, 18 years ago, okay? But that's part of it. You know, th- there's a message. And I, I think in the peoples of Sicily, I don't hit people over the head with it. I tell them up front, the message you get out of the book, the wisdom, whatever you, that's not me. It's not me to begin with. I'm just a messenger, okay? But you interpret that. I'm giving you the information. 
okay? In fact, that's the gist of most of my books is I'm here to give you the information. Yes, there may be some pleasant versus unpleasant facts involved, okay? That the wars of religion are not pretty things to talk about, okay? The Second World War is nothing pretty to talk about, okay? We, we can't run away from it. History isn't what we choose it to be. History is what it is, okay? It can be good, it can be bad. It's like deep space, it's indifferent to us. But there is a message there. And at least for a while, this was the message of medieval Sicily. You know, I really frankly don't get into the political ideologies, the modern political ideologies that much, okay? For example, I suspected in 2015 when People of Sicily came out, because, you know, subtitle, A Multicultural Legacy, and in certain places, in Great Britain, for example, the term multiculturalism has become a bad word because it's got this political thing. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to bite the bullet. I haven't gotten a single bad review based on that, um, which is kind of inspiring in a way. It's encouraging because, okay, maybe you can talk about these things a little bit, without necessarily setting off a riot. We can do it. We've done it. And that's the example I think Sicily offers. I love what you have to say about history, the fact that it's indifferent to us, and we do need to go back and examine our history. And this is a fantastic example, not just for those of us who can claim ancestry from the island or the polity, but for everybody from a world perspective. Because as Pat points out, Palermo was the Manhattan of its time, and it was a world and global capital, and it's been completely forgotten. Lou, before we go, because we got to wrap the episode, I want to ask you one final question because, as I said in the intro, we're friends and we get a little bit of advance notice. Are you comfortable sharing with the audience your upcoming book? Because you've written about the peoples of Sicily, you've written about genealogy, you've written one of the best histories in any language on the kingdom from 1130 to 1860. And Pat and I both know what your next book is. So would you give our audience a little preview if you're comfortable? Uh, yes. Uh, the book uh, which God willing will have uh, a release date in like probably like September or October. So in time for Christmas, it's called the kingdom of the two Sicilies, 1734 to 1861. Uh, this book deals with the end of this region of Italy as a political polity at that point ruled by the house of Bourbon of the two Sicilies, which was a branch of the house of Bourbon of Spain, which was in brand, in turn, they were descended from Louis XIV of France. That explains my mother's taste in furniture. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's yeah. Cool. yeah. French provincial is ours too, Pat. French yeah, provincial. That's exactly. That's right. We cracked. Now we know. Now we know why. <laughs> right. And and remember, and remember, Caserta, we outdid Versailles. Okay. So Absolutely. And my mother outdid Caserta. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> uh, yeah. And which is one of the things, by the way, the Caserta is the largest royal palace in Europe. Now, some people say that maybe the royal palace in Madrid is larger, and the difference is one might be by square footage, one, one might be by volume, okay? But this book is full of little-known facts. For example, one thing just throwing out there, Charles III, who was king of the two Sicilies, uh, the two Sicilies, just another way of saying the kingdom of Naples and Sicily, um, he was king from 1734, and then he left in 1759 to succeed to the Spanish throne when his older half-brother had passed away. So he left his son as king of, of Sicily. He divided the two kingdoms, divided the dynasty, so that the, the king of the two Sicilies was not directly connected to the king of Spain, supposedly. Okay, uh, years later, going into the 1770s, he corresponded with George Washington, and he sent a donkey to America. Another one was sent by the Grand Master of the Order of Malta at that time, and uh, in my book, The King of Sicily, and also in this new book, there's actually an ad that the estate manager at Mount Vernon ran an ad regarding these two donkeys. Okay, and we have it. And also Charles III, former king of Naples, former king of Sicily, and then king of Spain at that time, he built the first Catholic church in the city and state of New York, which most people do not know. St. Peter's, which is still there. And as a matter of fact, I worshiped there 
almost every morning in, when I lived in Manhattan. Right. St. Peter's, uh, which is downtown on the edge of the financial district down there, St. Peter's. Now, it, the, this church is this, at the same site, but there was a fire that actually destroyed the old church. Right. So the church we see now was built in the early 1800s. However, it's interesting. There's some stuff in that church from the original church. There's a painting that was there that was in the original church. So he sent a bunch of silver coins to help finance the church because it was coming off the end of the Revolutionary War and there was no Catholic church. Uh, and in, in Catholicism in, was illegal in the state of right. New York until the yes. American, yes. Exactly. Yeah. And so these are just interesting details about Charles III, who I maintain was the greatest king in any of the Italian states from, let's say, 1700 coming up to, you know, up to 1946. I think he was absolutely the greatest monarch. He was a reformer. He was progressive for the time. He did all kinds of things. And his son and his grandson were really not such bad kings either, despite the, the bad rap that they were later given by unificationists. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned unificationists, because I think certainly in recent years, there's been statistics, facts, archives opened up, new developments in terms of how we talk about the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies in this period of history. Yes. It's just a whole new popular sentiment. And I think it's going to be great to get an English language look into what has been a complete rediscovery of the positives of this amazing kingdom and the accomplishments that happened in the period that we're talking about. And frankly, there has not been anything in English since Lord Harold Acton's two-volume set in the late 60s. Right, right. In fact, Harold Acton's books, which are fantastic books, are essentially dynastic history. They really focus on the royal family, and they're very good. Um, also, Dennis Mac Smith has touched on these. His book, Italy and its Monarchy, uh, for example, some of his other books, but this is the first book that actually deals with the history of the people in the place that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's over 400 pages. And obviously there's things like cuisine and there's the languages, essentially Neapolitan and Sicilian, which are very real languages, which is spoken by a lot of people. I've got neighborhoods of Palermo that I walked through on my way to the supermarket that you've got streets where the people are speaking, not pure Sicilian, but you could, but I can understand it. Maybe a lot of people can't. <laughs> so I think it might be kind of interesting as a reference also for people who are doing genealogical research, people from the South, with roots in the South, who say, well, what is there for us? What is it really deals with specifically with that? Which was also one of the points with my book on Sicilian genealogy, because that was actually, as far as I know, the first book written in English that deals with not just, let's say, Italian genealogy generally with a section on Sicily, but specifically Sicily, where she has very good records, which in some cases are very different from the records in other parts of Italy. So I'm pretty excited about this book. It's something in a way that I've thought about writing maybe for a long time. Well, your excitement is definitely infectious, Lou, and it doesn't take much to get either of us excited about a great new book from a fantastic author on a topic that we really love and just can't get enough of. So I just want to say, first and foremost, it's been a pleasure having you on. You are a font of information. I know how passionate you are, and you're certainly welcome back anytime because I think our audience would love to hear more of the deep dive history, the broad stroke history, the passion you bring for genealogy, for anthropology and for this place that means a lot to a great deal of us. So thank you for being here. And we really mean it when we say we'll have you back at any time. I just want to say, Lou, this has been a fantastic experience. It almost, almost makes me want to be Sicilian. <laughs> oh, God. You <laughs> Not... should be so lucky. <laughs> but it's fantastic. I, I, I loved it. My first time um, to Sicily was with John and my brother. And, and Sicily is just absolutely stunning I, I got there and i was like i'm not in italy anymore. and i meant that in the best sense of the word and it's just it's a it's a it's a creature all its own and if you haven't been to sicily you should go 
And when you go, you got to meet Lou and get some of Lou's books. Yeah, absolutely. So, Lou, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. No, it's been a pleasure for us, Lou. I hope everybody out there enjoyed the wonderful dive into the history of the Kingdom of Sicily and perhaps its brilliant multicultural legacy will be something of an inspiration for all of us going forward. So on behalf of everybody at the Italian American Podcast, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. All right, thank you. See that you're born in Italian.